Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Coming up on this week's show, where you can stay in a retro gaming hotel. Why Nintendo almost changed their iconic logo. And we get the inside story of EA and 3DO with Trip Hawkins. This week's show is brought to you by The Economist, the smart guide to the forces changing your world. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 210, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Daniel Malcolmwood. Malcolmwood, okay. Uh, with me, Ravi James Abbott. And me, Joseph Elliott Fox. <laughs> I don't know What's where that came middle, from. Middle name, by. For <laughs> some reason, Joe just mentioned that his middle name was Elliot, which I've known you for like a decade and I didn't know that about you. Named after E.T. Yeah, I don't know. Why did I even mention that? I literally mentioned it two seconds ago. So we all just we started go. saying what our middle names were. We all found out something uh, that yeah, we didn't know we about go. each other there. So, yeah. <laughs> Welcome to this week's show. Now, we are going to be joined by someone on this week's podcast too. I'll be honest, I've wanted to have this guest on ever since we started this show over four years ago now. Now, we are going to be joined by the man behind the legendary electronic arts, Trip Hawkins, is going to be our guest on this week's show. Now, if you can name, you know, like the biggest game companies in the world. I think, you know, even though they haven't got the best rep these days online, I must yeah. say, but EA would be up there in the top five. Yeah, EA are probably like, you know, in terms of kind of like, obviously you've got Nintendo and Sony yeah. like making their own games and stuff, but in terms of third party developers straight away, the big ones are EA, Capcom, yep. uh, Namco really, but I would say EA are probably one of the top still are one of the biggest in the world. So it's crazy that you managed to get him on. And Trip is, um, well, he's a really interesting guy because he, he actually came up with the idea of EA mm. years before he started it. Okay. Yeah, which we'll hear about in this interview because he worked at Apple for a while as well, didn't he, in the interim? Yeah, so we've got stories about him, you know, kind of working with Steve Jobs, Steve Jobs' attitude at the time as well. But then later on going into, like, developments as well. So we talk about, oh, God, my favourite piece of software, Deluxe Paint as yeah. well. And then go later on into the 3DO hardware development. So it's a really interesting episode, this. Because 3DO is it's a really interesting system. Obviously, it was this platform that came out in the early 90s to try and standardise video game consoles. Mm. And it was, you know, a monumental failure. But the reasoning behind Behind it, Trip had it all laid out in his mind, and obviously other systems came along that took its crown, like um, the PlayStation, for yeah, example. Yeah. And the price of it was really high as well. But there was some, you know, interesting business decisions behind it. So we chat to Trip about the 3DO. Um, it's a system I'm fond of, the 3DO, because to me as a kid, it was kind of up there with like Neo Geo. Yeah, it's one of those like <laughs> un- unobtainable yeah. consoles that you're never going to get a hold of. But then as an adult, you kind of you know, splurge out and get it. So, yeah, really interesting to and hear a little a bit more about that. A lot of those PlayStation titles were basically 3DO titles. Yeah. You know, the ported over yeah, the early Yeah, for Speed so. and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, so Trip Hawkins is an absolute legend of the industry, is going to be our guest on the show in around 15 minutes from now. Now, there is something really good coming up in the summer this year. Now, we're already filling our events calendar up. I mean, we've been talking about it over the last couple of weeks. Preparations are well underway for Play Expo in Manchester that's coming up. Going to be at Retro Mesa in Norway. But there is also a brand new one this year happening on the weekend of June 27th and June 28th. Now, we're all going to be getting on the plane, heading over to the Netherlands for Flashback 2020. So we thought to find out a bit more about it, we'd get on one of the organisers behind it, our good friend Marvin Drugsma. Welcome to the show. 
Hey guys, how are you doing? Really excited for this event now. Uh, Flashback 2020, tell us what it is then. What's the idea of Flashback 2020? 2020, uh, well, it's it's an uh, unprecedented uh, retro fest um, like never seen before. Uh, we're having amazing guests. Uh, besides all the, the amazing hardware from the 80s and 90s, uh, we're having people that make the difference in that era. And uh, as I said, there's amazing guests. Uh, hello, uh, we've got Billy Mitchell. Has never been to Europe uh, before, uh, and he's gonna gonna do some Donkey Kong uh, miracles for us. And there's more, lots more to come. Well, I think it's an amazing lineup, and uh, you know, as you said, a lot of these people haven't actually been to Europe, and uh, seeing guys like the Eight Bit Guy, MVG, you know, yeah. Dave Haney, kind of Lucas Arts as well, and this just looks really fantastic. I think it's a great location as well because it's really easy for a lot of people in Europe to get to. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an amazing uh, venue. It's, it's large, it's very large, but it's got cinemas and lots of rooms, lots of space. It is uh, sort of very close to Amsterdam. It's not Amsterdam, but it has its issues with parking and travel and stuff like that. So uh, Hilversum, where, where Built and Geluid, Sound and Vision uh, is, is, is way better. And of course, we're going to be there as well. You couldn't keep us away. You are. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. We need more space, more drinks. Yeah, definitely more drinks, uh, I think, if we have you there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but this is going to be awesome. And happening on that June 27th and 28th, right in the middle of the summer in the Netherlands. And the, the website is flashback2020.com. Uh, tickets are on yeah. sale now? They're, uh, they're online. You can uh, be quick because they, they tend to go fast. Well, Marvin, we can't wait for a, a proper celebration of 80s and 90s retro computers and arcades. And it's all going to be happening in the Netherlands this summer, a flashback 2020. We will see you there, Marvin. You bet on that, yeah. Now, here's something that's been all over, not only the gaming media this week as well. I mean, I've seen it on television, on radio stations, all over my Facebook timeline. I think we probably tweeted this and Facebooked it probably about 50 times. Everyone's been talking about the... Atari-themed hotels. Yeah, so I just randomly saw this and I shot it over to you. And then that same day, like you say, people started sending it over to us as well. I can't get my head around this. This is, you know, it's crazy. I just feel like Atari are just kind of like trying to raise rise from the ashes at the moment we've just said like you know you've got the vcs and it is the same atari isn't yeah. it doing the v, who are doing the vcs and now doing doing the hotels so it isn't obviously they're not going in on it on their own they've kind of like licensed themselves out to a company called gsd group yeah who, now these are um it's a guy called shelly murphy um and apparently it's really interesting so working with them um, steve wozniak's was innovation foundation to kind of get these hotels built, apparently. And um, they've also got an association with Napoleon Smith III, who was a producer of the recent Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movies. Yeah, <laughs> so I'm guessing he's just got some sort of money and he's probably going to be some sort of, like, producer of the hotels yeah. as well. And locations as well that they're talking about, uh, kind of Seattle, San Francisco, Denver, they're saying the first one will be in Phoenix, and Las Vegas as well, which really makes sense. You see, you know, I was going to say, La- in Vegas, Vegas so. makes sense, and Seattle makes sense as well, because Seattle, there's loads of big gaming companies there based there and stuff but apparently they're going to start making the phoenix one by the end of this year so yeah we'll see but one, one thing what i thought was really funny was uh ravi pointed out that they're going to be using cryptocurrency in the hotels <laughs> why is it atari branded i, I think know? it I, I i read it was like aimed for the generation y guys to kind of okay. come in you know be a bit nostalgic they'll be like Gaming bars, there'll be, be an arcade section. There's going to be a VR room in them yeah. as well, like virtual reality rooms and stuff. So I don't know. It, it sounds 
absolutely mental to me. But <laughs> but it's not going to stop me wanting to go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. You like, know, this sounds like really at odds, though. Because, I mean, you're talking, obviously, Atari, a brand that really, I mean, had its peak in the late 70s. Yeah. In terms of game. But then you're talking about stuff like VR and crypto. To me, it doesn't tally with Atari at all. Well, I think it's entertainment kind of venue or gaming venue. And as we talked about the, the, the Nintendo land that they're building as well, yeah. and, you know, Sega World that they used to have, uh, these gaming destinations, maybe that's a new thing. And, you and, know? and I get that, but at the same time, Nintendo's so huge at the moment and so huge still that I get why there's a Nintendo World. And I get why there was a Sega World or Sega Land. Back in the day, but Atari, it's just so well, like... Atari was so big in America, though. Like, yeah, I can't imagine it would be like the Atari ST hotel in the UK, <laughs> but like, you know, but it's just, or the Jag hotel. It's just weird, like, because they're not, you know, I like Atari, but they're not really that relevant no. these days. Do you know what I mean? I mean, obviously, they're trying to be with this new system yeah. that they're bringing out, but it's not even out yet. So, kind of yeah. banking the farm on that's a bit, you know. Yeah, but then also, if you look at stuff like Ready Player One, you know, mm, yeah. they're, they're iconic. They're like that logo and kind of the connection of arcade history, seeing that, you know, it gets people excited. That's I what guess. I think the basis is. You know? and, and then maybe because, of, to be honest, I mean, reading the articles, apparently they're going to be getting 5% of the revenue of the what the hotels make from GDS and they're just getting like, I think it's like half a million dollars up front right now. Right. So it, it could be that they've not actually got that much involvement in it and GDS are just kind of like buying the license to build these hotels. And Atari are just like, well, we've not really got to do anything and we're just going to make a bit of money off it. Yeah. So it could be that as well. In the future, we're going to have a choice of Hilton, the Marriott, and Atari. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was reading some great stuff on Twitter. People were saying, like, uh, wouldn't it be great if we're in the bathroom instead of taps, you had, like, a Atari VCS control like, joysticks? <laughs> <laughs> and instead of, like, a lock, you had, like, you know, a red button to press, like, the fire button to get in your room and stuff. And That would be quite funny. The bar was all wood grain. <laughs> <laughs> a wood grain hotel. <laughs> I mean, you like, had a cartridge on the door that you had to <laughs> yeah, blow. Yeah, 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 to, to put your electricity on, it's a cartridge. 2600 cartridge. Well, I must admit, you know, when we went into 2020 um, last month, I didn't expect that one of the stories would be <laughs> talking about on the show is the fact that Atari are doing hotels. So, like you said, I'd stay in it. I'm yeah. interested to see what it's going to be like, but it, it is mad. Yeah, is CRTs in the uh, rooms. Yeah, I mean, it could, it could be really awesome, but yeah, we wait and see. We'll you know, see. actually, for retro gaming events, if they did like, you know, expos and all that, there, that, yeah. that'd be perfect. Yeah, but, absolutely. They yeah. might have like function rooms and stuff, so who knows? Right then, let's talk about sensible soccer. Obviously, um, that's kind of one of the most legendary football games of the early 90s. And it's still got quite an active scene in 2020. Yeah, so a lot of people regarded this as kind of one of the best football games because of the playability. Yeah. It's just so much fun to play. Well, the online world has really kind of helped sensible soccer. I remember we used to get data discs or, or discs in magazines where you could upload the roster, the latest roster. You could have all your cool new players. Well, everything's changed. If you go to sensiblesoccer.de, there is a new version which is called World of Soccer 2020. And what you can do is you can compete in online leagues, online tournaments, which is really cool. So some of the leagues, they've got the Amiga Super League, they've got the Champions League, and you're playing against other people online. And all the rosters are updated with the latest stuff. But this is also available for the Windows version and the Amiga version. So you can play it on the old school games? Yeah, oh, right, yeah. Okay, cool. What you need is you need the original version of Sensible World of Soccer just for, like, the data files, you know, so you're not kind of breaking copyright. And then you could download this new World of Soccer, updates it all, gives you the ability to put your scores online. You can play people online as well. Just absolutely fantastic. So everybody that I've met at recent computer 
events have been going around going, have you seen Sensible World of Soccer, <laughs> the new one? That's mad though that a game is like, well, it's supposed to be like 25 years old now. You can still like do updates for it. I mean, yeah, I'm currently looking at it. There's eight on, users online and they're currently playing yeah. all different leagues from all around the world. You know? Yeah, I, was gonna, I noticed that as well. You've got some, well, obviously people from the UK, but Italy, Germany, that's crazy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, again, it is. Talking about football games, it's an iconic game. I know John did the uh, sociable soccer yeah. last year, but I think there is still like so much love for the original game so it's nice to see it get an update still so if you want to check that out I'll put that and everything else we talked about in our show notes at theretrohour.com now let's talk about Nintendo I mean if you're talking about think of iconic logos in the world I'd say for me you know stuff like the Nike Nike tick the Nike yeah. tick yeah. the Apple logo yeah another um, one the, 20, the Nintendo logo 20th Century Fox is one that yeah, I'd say yeah. as well that you uh, the Paramount yeah. Lady at the front. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, there is. You know, there are certain brands in the world that you'd expect should never change their logo because they're recognisable by everybody. Mm. But it turns out, I mean, obviously, Reggie Filame, he um, left Nintendo last year, Nintendo of America's former president, and he'd been there since um, 2003. Yeah. And he did a really interesting interview with a podcast called Present Value. Now, this is, it's by um, a bunch of university graduate students, and it's all about business, this okay. podcast. And they actually got Reggie on there a couple of weeks ago to kind of talk about not only kind of his experiences in the world of business, but actually, he actually told quite a lot about his time at Nintendo as well. Yeah. And a lot of stuff that obviously he couldn't say when he still worked there. Now, he joined, like, I mean, I think 2003, that was yeah. right in the middle of the, the GameCube, GameCube and the Wii, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and it was an interesting time for Nintendo. I think they were kind of going through a bit of a voyage of kind of rediscovery in a way like what should we do next what's our next kind of yeah step was this was, wii u period this is no, before the so wii this is yeah. the, before the wii wow, so yeah. this is you know the height of the, this is bang in the middle of the gamecube but then mm. you gotta think the wii was actually being developed at yeah. that point as well because if you look at the early wii stuff it's actually being used on a gamecube and stuff like that so mm. yeah i think like you say it's a kind of like where they're rediscovering themselves they want to be this family this family uh, kind of company aimed at family, or do you want to be this kind of like radical? Because the GameCube had that little bit of like edginess to it, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. Well, and, and obviously the N64 did as well. Yeah. And it kind of, it was weird because Reggie actually revealed that around that time, they were trying to distance themselves a bit from being a kid's brand. Oh. And one of the things that some of the marketing team there were talking about was changing the classic Nintendo logo. Right. Taken out of the oval. I mean, it's called the racetrack. That's the nickname they give it. It looks like a racetrack with the, the name in the middle. There's actually, it's been like that since the early 70s, at yeah. least, the yeah. Nintendo logo. But apparently they're trying like some <laughs> different designs to kind of make it a bit edgier, including one of them was written in a graffiti-style font. Yeah. That's kind of like, it feels like that's kind of holding on to that kind of like, you know, that early 90s yeah. Sega Bart Simpson like kind of cool dude attitude really for me but at the same time you got to think around about that that time they were you know doing these big contracts of like Capcom and stuff to be like oh all your mainline Resident Evil games are going to be Nintendo and you've got you know all these kind of like teen and mature games coming out on the GameCube so I can see why they were trying to go down that route but then they went for the Wii and went for the whole family-friendly yeah. <laughs> thing again and that was a kind of Sega thing as well if you yeah. like think of Jet Set Radio Games like that with yeah, the graffiti yeah, in them and, yeah, you know, yeah. like Def Jam Vendetta and yeah. all of that kind of stuff. It and was, I uh, guess at the same time, around that time, they picked up Sega, didn't they? Well, the games, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the they, yeah, yeah. yeah. They, so, I don't know, maybe it all kind of links together, but that's really interesting. Yeah, but it would have been so weird, though, because then you think their look when the Wii came out, it kind of went a bit like Apple kind of minimalism, didn't it? The Y yeah, and the, yeah. the logo was even changed to grey 
yeah. know, from the red during the Wii period. So it's really odd, though. It would have. He actually put a stop to that. He said, "No, we're not changing it. It's an iconic logo." Mm. So I mean, we're learning more about what Reggie did, and actually, he made a lot of really interesting and very you know positive, valid decisions yeah, when he was yeah. at Nintendo. I think so. So mission, Ravi, get him on the podcast. Yeah, <laughs> you heard it here first. Yeah, if, if you're listening, <laughs> Reggie, we'd love to have you on. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll shove that in our show notes as well. If you want to get a look at what Nintendo's logo could have looked like. Now, before we get into our retro picks this week, just time to do our very, very loyal supporters on the podcast this week. People have made a donation into the running of the show. Now, every week we do the Hall of Fame. Now, this is where I think of it as a little little VIP club that you can become part of by helping out this podcast. Now, we have a little tip jar on our website, theretrohour.com. PayPal donations, anything we get into there, 100% goes back into the running of this podcast. And for doing that, you'll get a little mention in a future episode. Just like this week in the Hall of Fame, thank you so much to William Elvey, Bart Taha, Paul Edwards, and Scott Garrett, who all made donations into the running of the show. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find that the little supporters tab at theretrohour.com. And while we're talking about amazing people who support this podcast, let's give a big thank you to our very good friends at The Economist who have supported the Retro Hour podcast for a long time. And we'd like to give you your own free copy of The Economist. Now, the thing about The Economist is, it's been going for over 170 years. And really, it's needed now more than ever. With the amount of news that we read every day online, on social media, they sift through all the noise and focus on the essential information and tell the real story. And they cover so much in there as well to get you ready for what's happening in the world around you, including, of course, the economy, finance, world politics, business, science, arts, the environment, video games, and technology. Now, there's lots of The Economist that takes our interest every week, including one that actually might save you a few quid on your power bills in the future. Yeah, so uh, we've been talking about smart cities and kind of intelligent roads, all of this stuff. Well, transparent solar cells seem to be the new thing. So the problem with solar panels is they're fully black. Yeah. So you can only put them in certain places. Like you can have them on top of buildings, on the roofs. You've probably seen them on the side of some buildings and stuff. But you can't use them as windows. You can't look through them. They're not transparent. Of course. But there's a new technology that's basically come out and they've created... Solar cells that are about as transparent as tinted glass in a car. Wow, okay. Yeah, so eventually, you know, we're probably going to have complete see-through solar cells, and that would be amazing. So essentially your windows can pile your house, yeah. which is amazing. Yeah. Well, I've seen Joe's retro collection. That'd save you a fortune, wouldn't it? It'd save me an absolute fortune in power and also in retro brighting with that tinted glass. <laughs> Two uses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's made for people <laughs> like us. Now, that's the kind of thing you can read about in The Economist, and we want you to check it out for yourself. Now, if you'd like your own free print copy of The Economist, it'll come through your letterbox on us if you live in the UK. All you've got to do is get your phone right now, and of course, you'll be really helping out the podcast by doing this. Text the the word retro and send it to 78070. So that's retro to 78070 and you will get a free copy of The Economist, The Smart Guide to the Forces Changing Your World. Now before we chat to Trip Hawkins all about EA and his time at Apple and 3DO, let's do our retro picks. Now this is where every week we give a little shout out to projects we've been looking at, new games, new systems, maybe YouTubers that we've been watching. Now this week I want to say... Um, a big shout to a group of guys who are called Knights of Bites. Now, they made this game a couple of years ago for the Commodore 64 called Sam's Journey. Mm -hmm. Now, this was a really good, like, cutesy platformer game okay. that came out in the 64. It's a bit like the, um, if you remember that Mayhem in Monsterland game that came out back in the, yeah. uh, the late 90s. Kind of like a Super Nintendo-style side-scrolling platform yeah, game. Yeah. It looks really good. And it was a massive hit when this came out on the 64 scene. Um, must have been about two years ago now. Well, they've actually released a little video saying that they are doing a version for the NES now as well. Oh, wicked. Now, they put out a couple of um, little teaser trailers. Check out the music as well. As well, this for some good NES music. 
quite <laughs> e- Egyptian, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I mean, it looks really good. It's very much in like the Mario style. You know, yeah. you, you go along collecting things and jumping on things, but it looks really good. The amount of detail they've packed into that really limited colour palette on the NES as well looks incredible from it. So there's no release date for it yet, but it's always good getting um, you know new platform games and new games of any style for yeah, yeah. classic systems, I think. What have you been checking out this week then, Ravi? Yeah, so I've been checking out uh, something. It's it's quite a disaster, and it's quite sad, actually. A channel called Last Gamer. Yeah. You may have seen him because he has a massive arcade collection, like one of the biggest ones I've seen on YouTube. It's it's insane. And uh, we all know there's been some crazy weather in Australia. Well, as well as the fires, there's been a lot of lightning and a lot of rain happening. And basically, he went off, left his whole house, kind of uh, everything plugged in, you know, all, yeah. the, all these arcade, arcade machines. And then lightning actually hit his house, split a tree in half. It was like that powerful. And there was a surge through all of the plugs. So he's lost like three quarters of his arcade wow. machines. These are like... If you've seen a video, his place is absolutely amazing. And these are like outrun machines, you know, yeah. absolutely amazing things. So and He's got um, over 40,000 games as well. So Yeah, and I don't <laughs> think he's insured no. as well. So there's a fundraiser on GoFundMe, actually, um, which is just helping him. And there's a link to this uh, shocking disaster fund. And, uh, you know, Joel, I hope you can get all your stuff back together and kind of... Uh, keep your fantastic channel going. Yeah, because I mean, Joel, he's like, a lot of people look at it, I've seen a few comments going, oh, he's a rich guy, he doesn't need help. He's not actually, he actually worked his way up. I mean, he had this dream when he was eight years old of getting this collection, he's worked yeah, all his yeah, life yeah. for it. And unfortunately, like Ravi said, I don't think he was insured for it too, which, you know, we all we all do stuff like that, you don't mm. think of it until mm. it's too late, do you? So, I mean, in any way that we can get help for Joel, because if you look at it, I'll put a link actually to his channel in the it's, in the It's, it's crazy, well. like, yeah. you look at the plug socket and it's completely burnt through. And yeah. it's like, wow, I didn't even think that could happen. Yeah. Yeah. Heartbreaking to lose that kind of collection. So hopefully you get that sort of gel. And uh, you've been watching YouTube this week as well. Not another speedrunner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just on this big speed run hype at the moment. I'm just addicted to them. Like every night watching a speed run. You speed run junkie. Parts. Yeah, like and I like to try and do them myself. So I've been watching a YouTuber, I found another one. Uh, he's called I'm gonna get this wrong now, it's called Car Car Key. Is it Carcinogen SDA? Carcinogen SDA. There we go. That's very, thank you. So Carcinogen, Carcinogen <laughs> SDA. I can't even say it. Um, pretty much just some, some really, really fun speed runs, mainly on survival horror games, my favourite games of all time mm. again. But, you know, not just Resident Evil, but just other ones from the PS1 and PS2 uh, era. Lot, lots of games like uh, Rose Red, Parasite Eve and stuff like that. But he just does puts real, really cool spins on them, trying to complete it with a certain weapon, without a certain weapon doing it one way, one way or the other, just check it out if you're into anything like that and you just like to stick it on and just, while you're doing the housework, just just, just a bit of fun. I like watching them and I'm just like, you know, I, I wish I was that good. That's good job. Yeah, yeah, that's what I try to do and then I try to do these things on these games and I just mess it up every time. Have you seen this new trend of um, showing speedruns to developers who made the game? No. Oh, no. That's really that's, interesting ooh. because all the developers are going, how's he done that? Wait, I can't, what? And when they start using glitches and exploits, sends them crazy. That's crazy. Check that out. That's why they put cheats in the game back in the day. So a lot of the developers yeah. couldn't yeah. play it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, on the new Crash Bandicoot, uh, there's a lot of ones with developers going, what? <laughs> crazy. <laughs> so we'll put all our retro picks and all the stories we talked about this week. You'll find them all. You don't have to Google them. We put them on our show notes for you. You can check them out on your podcast app or our website, theretrohour.com. Right now, let's get into the stories of legendary companies like EA, 3DO, Apple as well, with this week's special guest, industry veteran Trip Hawkins. <laughs> 
You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time to welcome this week's very special guest, a true veteran of the video games industry. We're going to talk about legendary companies like EA, of course, Apple as well, and a system I've been a huge fan of since it came out, the 3DO. Let's welcome this week's very special guest, Trip Hawkins. Welcome to the Retro Hour. Well, thank you. Amazing to have you on. Now, uh, before we get into the stories of those companies and your time at them, um, I was reading that you know before you got into video games, you actually released a board game um, called Stratomatic Football when you were you were very young. Well, actually, there, there's a third-party company that was one of the first to make a statistics-based uh, sports-themed uh, board game, card game, where you would roll dice and you know do table lookups on charts and on player cards. And it was, uh, I don't know, you could think of it as the uh, equivalent of EA Sports before computers. So I I discovered that game uh, when I was a kid. And uh, actually, to this day, I still play their baseball game because I think it's a really fantastic product. And I have some really old friends that, you know, we've crafted our own kind of fantasy league around uh, that game. And then, of course, uh, I was initially drawn to their, uh, the fact that they had a football game, but... I didn't think the football game was very good. So there I, there I am, a, I'm a teenager, and I thought, you know, uh, I could make a better game than this. And it turned out I was right. So I, I made my own tabletop football game with dice and charts and cards, and I put that out. Uh, it was around, uh, I mean, the, the working prototype I had around 1970, so that's like 50 years ago. So this is, you know, again, I was a teenager, and I actually uh, then borrowed $5,000 from my dad and basically went through the entrepreneurial process of uh, finding vendors to make all the parts and, you know, assembling it uh, with my sister's help on some card tables I set up in the playroom at home and uh, fell in love with uh, both the uh, creative side of of what I was doing and the uh, feeling of being an entrepreneur. I just kind of knew, wow, uh, this is for me. I'm going to do this more uh, more effectively in the future. And, and of course, uh, I lost every penny of the five grand. You know, I sold games, but I certainly didn't sell thousands of games. I didn't have enough money to really do any marketing, etc. But it was a, a, a wonderful experience. And it just, just convinced me that, yeah, this is the life for me. Well, that kind of started you becoming creative. What got you into computers and technology? And when was the first time you kind of really experienced a computer? Yeah, right around that same time, it turns out my father had a work colleague who would later become the lead game designer at one of the early coin-operated arcade game companies. That company was uh, uh, in San Diego, where we lived. It was called Gremlin. They were later acquired by Sega. And that guy, Lane Hauk was his name. He was a really brilliant engineer, and he had actually purchased... For in today's dollars, uh, he probably spent the equivalent of thirty thousand dollars to buy this little PDP-8 kit. You know, a funny-looking box with a bunch of switches and lights on it. And he had hooked it up to a KSR-33, which was a uh, really primitive, clunky keyboard attached to a yellow roll of paper, kind of like uh, only slightly better than toilet paper, basically that that you could. Uh, print things on. And so he he essentially had the ability to type instructions to the computer on this crappy keyboard and have the computer do some processing and then spit out some results by printing them 
on uh, the uh, yellow paper, and he had uh, created a really primitive guessing game. And, you know, he'd just done all this at home kind of as a hobby. And so he was way ahead of his time. I was way ahead of my time. And uh, when I, uh, and my dad took me over to his house to see what he was up to. And that was a key puzzle piece for me, because what I'd already noticed is that if you have a game, and I'll use D&D as a reference point, a lot of us are familiar with D&D, and it was really the birth of role-playing games. And anybody that's actually played D&D knows that you are really going heavily into a lot of data management and a lot of administration of data and statistical information. And the players have to kind of operate all of that machinery themselves. And I was able to recognize kind of in the early days of the golden age of television, I could tell that, wow, people would rather go watch TV. And TV uh, has the visuals to be kind of attractive and engaging. And it's less work for people. You know, they, they need to have these kinds of experiences be more accessible. So it's one thing if you want to be a hero in a dungeon defeating a dragon, or if you want to be a football player winning uh, the game with brilliant strategy and, and tactics. You know, it's a, it's a whole other thing if you have to manage all of the uh, computational aspects of uh, getting that to be a realistic simulation. And I, I just recognized that, wow, hey, we can uh, take all of that administrative stuff and put it inside a computer and present images on the screen that are uh, pretty pictures like television. And then we could get everybody that wants to do this. Because who doesn't want to be a hero? Who doesn't want to be a champion? Well, you knew you went to Harvard as well. And I was reading that you did quite a, uh, a unique major at Harvard. <laughs> what did you study there? And how did you do that? Well, by the time I got to college, I already knew that this was what I wanted to help make this kind of technology and this kind of uh, uh, human experience happen. And I didn't really want to just be an academic and study things for the sake of studying them. I wanted to have my college education specifically help me do what I wanted to do. And that didn't really fit in any conventional academic department. And it turned out Harvard had a, uh, a thing called the Committee for Special Concentrations, where if you were willing to do twice as much work, if you could convince faculty to volunteer to help you, even though it was not going to be part of their normal job, uh, you could fill out an application and apply to get uh, essentially a uh, special major. And they make you jump through a ton of hoops and do a lot of extra work, but it was worth it. And basically, I created the world's first college degree in video games. Well, as you said, the uh, microcomputer boom was kind of really taking off then. Did you see something big on the horizon? You know, it, it, it's funny. I um, The last two summers... As I was finishing college, I, w I was working at a think tank in Santa Monica, and uh, I remember this from the summer of 1975. Uh, one of my colleagues is an older gentleman. He came came back from lunch one day, and he said, wow, I was just in a uh, computer resale store. And I thought, what? And he explained to me that, yeah, this, this place uh, uh, can rent you a computer terminal, and you can take it home and plug it into your work mainframe, and, you know, it it only costs you 10 bucks an hour to, to have connectivity through a modem at home. And he had just read an article about uh, Intel's introduction of the first standalone, you know, multi-functional uh, uh, CPU chip, which, and that was really the, <clears throat> we're talking about the very birth of personal computing and CPUs 
and computer retailing. Oh, you know, he, he was sort of mentioning that these things are just starting. Well, yeah, uh, it was pretty interesting because it turned out that he had been in a retail store called The Computer Store, started by this guy named uh, Paul Heiser. And that was, in fact, the world's first computer store. You know, he didn't know that. I didn't know that then. But again, it was just, it was just one of these uh, moments in my life where I realized, wow, this really is happening. And after he left my office, I just pulled out a piece of scratch paper and I said, okay, so I saw that PDP-8. You know, I know where computers are at in the college that I've just been in. You know, my colleague has just told me about what you can do at retail, you know, renting one of these uh, terminals. When are there going to be enough computers in homes that I can make a business making games for them? And I started scribbling on this piece of paper and kind of estimating how long it would take for prices to come down and for the market to get it. And I decided that the year to start Electronic Arts would be 1982. So, so I literally pegged that year seven years in advance. And of course, by that time, you know, I'd already spent four or five years planning and thinking about all this stuff. And, uh, you know, so, you know, literally by the time I actually started Electronic Arts in, in 1982, of course, uh, I had actually been working on the idea of it for about 11 years. Well, between that, you worked for Apple, didn't you? How did you get the role at Apple and what attracted you to that company? So, I, like I said, I ended up in Silicon Valley at the end of uh, college, and that was a important discovery. And I, I realized that if I was going to start my own company, I wanted to have more success than my previous go-round as a teenager, and that it would be a good idea for me to go work for somebody else for a while that had a little more experience and success doing it so I could learn from working with them and observing and so on. And I thought, well, shoot, the, the most useful purpose for me would be to help get hardware into homes because what I want is hardware in homes so I can make software for those uh, uh, systems. And, and I started to uh, basically research and study the uh, early video game and eventually figured out that uh, Apple was the most interesting company and had to do whatever necessary to convince them to hire me. And uh, sure enough, they hired me in 1978. And when I got to Apple, literally the company only had 25 office workers. And I managed to uh, work very closely with the founders and particularly with Steve Jobs during my four years there. And we built a great company. And by the time I left, we had 4,000 employees. When you were at Apple as well, I mean, working with Steve Jobs, what was that like? So, I mean, I actually, I saw a video of you talking about a, a great story where one day came in and asked you if you'd ever done acid before. Yeah, yeah. That, the, the funny thing about that particular story is that I knew that he'd probably come out of a meeting where he wasn't getting what he wanted because somebody was quoting arguments that I'd made about that same subject, and I think it probably pissed him off. And so he, he just came by to tweak me. But, uh, you know, it's well known that Steve was a uh, big believer in LSD. And, uh, yeah, he, he thought that was uh, maybe something that uh, I needed to do. I, I, I <laughs> I hadn't done it then. I, I haven't done it since. It's just not something I've ever really been uh, attracted to. But I'm sure uh, I'm a bit more of a linear thinker than Steve. And, you know, he didn't, he didn't always want to think in straight lines. Well, how did he feel when you left to start Electronic Arts? And that must have been, you know, a hard decision to leave Apple when they were, you know, having some momentum. Uh, he was very, very pissed off that I left. And I'm not really trying to brag here, but to this day, I think I'm the most successful Apple alumni, you know, in terms of anybody that actually had a, uh, 
meaningful manager job at Apple and then left and went on to do something else. <clears throat> and he never liked it when people left Apple. He took it kind of personally. And, of course, he was always trying hard to convince you not to do it. And not only did I follow through and leave, uh, I also hired a few of my colleagues from Apple uh, to come on board early on. And so that was that was adding insult to injury. And then on top of that, I had the audacity to build a success, successful company. And that just further enraged him. And I, I had a high enough profile, both from what I had done at Apple and what I was doing at EA, that... Uh, the media would often ask me my view about what was going on at Apple, and Apple had a lot of issues. And as you know, uh, Steve himself got pushed out of Apple in 1985, and I think it just further irritated him that uh, I was somebody that was willing to talk candidly on the record about my opinion about what was going on at Apple. He never really got over it. I mean, he and I stayed in touch. Uh, back you know, in later years, he always invited me to all the uh, premieres of the uh, Pixar movies and you know, he and I had been pretty close friends uh, you know, for a period of time. And it was a fascinating experience working with someone uh, like Steve and, you know, uh, what an immense uh, talent and genius he was. And, you know, I, and I knew he was going to have a really big impact, and he did. Well, your company was uh, not originally called Electronic Arts, was it? It was uh, Amazing Software. How did the name develop then? Well, I had uh, remembered a television uh series. It was called Amazing Stories. And I, I just liked the word amazing. And uh, yeah, just out to shoot, I thought, okay, well, I'll call this Amazing Software. And when I started, uh, so that's the name under which it was incorporated. And, you know, within, I guess it was about five months later, by that time I had, I don't know, uh, five or 10 employees. None of the employees really loved that name. You know, and one of the board members loved the name, so I'm, I'm not the only person who liked the name. Hmm. What I think you don't realize when you're starting something new is that in the very beginning, of course, nobody's ever heard of it. And you can call it Patrazibi, and if it turns out that it's a success, Patrazibi will become a really big brand name, and everybody will know what it means and knows, will know what it stands for. So there, there ends up, I think, being too much ego and worrying about what the name is. Uh, you've got to build value around the name. You've got to get that name to have brand value because it stands for certain values and attributes that customers care about. And look, uh, a lot of people complain uh, about Apple's name. And we used to get letters from us saying, how, how do you expect to be taken seriously if you're named for a piece of fruit? Uh, you know, my feeling was Apple Computer was a great name because for the first time, the public was having a chance to interact with computers directly and to have it be a personal experience. And they were intimidated and afraid of computers. And you needed to find a way to make it feel more accessible. And hardly anything's more accessible than an Apple. And so I, I think when you, when you have a name that combines a word like Apple and a word like computer, those two words don't seem to have anything to do with each other. And if you put them together it arouses some curiosity. It's like, wow, you know, I, I'm not sure I need a computer. I'm not sure what I would do with a computer. But if I ever consider using a computer, I'm kind of curious about what Apple computer is. So I, I always believed in the name. You know, I, I thought Amazing Software was a perfectly acceptable name. But enough uh, of the early employees didn't love it that I thought, well, yeah, yeah, we, we can consider changing it. And, of course, everybody had been hearing me for several months you know, talk about the mantra about the software artists. And 
you know, the idea of uh, building a company around the idea of software as an art form, that was a very potent idea. It, it appealed to pretty much everybody. It appealed to the developers. It appealed to the industry. It appealed to uh, prospective employees. It appealed to the media. It appealed to customers. Everybody could relate to that, that idea. It was an inspiring idea, whether you're making this stuff or using this stuff, to just think about that, wow, I'm experiencing an entirely new medium, an entirely new art form. Yeah, was one and, thing you did was um, you actually made the programs at the stars, didn't you? It was kind of like a, a music album. You put their names on the covers. And did you see that they should get recognition and make them like the star of it? Yeah, I mean, it was around 1980 when I realized that the best engineers that I was working with at Apple were really artists. They were creative people, and they had personalities a lot like divas, and that they, they uh, actually deserved and needed to be treated as the special people that they are. That was kind of the linchpin idea that I'd been looking for that could be the kind of anchor idea that a company could be built around. And uh, it just it opened up a lot of obvious strategic work for me, because once I had that central idea in my head, I thought okay, so I'm going to build a company that's going to be a new kind of Hollywood. I guess I should go study Hollywood. And you know, so I started networking and I started reading books and really studying and thinking about how Hollywood industries work and why they work the way they do and what that might suggest to me about what my business strategy ought to be. And it informed many of the critical early strategic decisions about how Electronic Arts would, would go about its business. And that included... Things like uh, the packaging and the merchandising and the way we talked about product and talked about developers, and it also included the fairly dramatic and risky decision to sell directly to retail, mm. which at that time no software companies had ever done. So all of that was basically referencing what worked for Hollywood and trying to apply it in this uh, new field of endeavor. And it's funny because you know I had a bunch of you know cottage industry competitors, and they all thought I was crazy. And they all thought I'd be out of business within a year. And instead, within a couple of years, uh, Electronic Arts was number one and had surpassed all 135 of the companies that were already there when we, when we started. Which platforms were you targeting initially for your, making your games? Obviously, in the very beginning, I was partial to the Apple II because I knew it really well. Hmm. But I also liked the Atari 800. The Atari 800 had a... Um, a nice graphics processor and a sound chip, and you could plug four joysticks into it, which I love. So I was maybe one of the original thinkers about the concept of social games, and I really wanted to enable multiple people to be sitting around the same screen playing a game together. And, of course, one of our very first games, Mule, uh, was a four-player game, and it was uh, uh, planned and developed originally for the Atari 800. And, and then those two machines, both the Apple II and the Atari 800, even though our debut products appeared on those machines, uh, neither one of those machines was doing a huge amount of hardware volume, so we couldn't sell that many software units. In those days, you had to be pretty happy if you sold 20,000 uh, units of software. But the Commodore 64 came along and was much uh, cheaper. So uh, you know, back at, in those days, of course, you'd have to adjust these numbers according to inflation, but back at that time, the uh, Apple II, if you bought an Apple II system, you're getting an Apple II, you're getting a couple of floppy disk drives, you're getting a monitor, 
Uh, you're getting, you might be getting a modem, you might be getting a printer. You could pretty easily spend, uh, in those days, $2,000, which today would probably be closer to $5,000. Mm-hmm. Not everybody's going to do that, right? Uh, well, the Atari 800 uh, cost uh, under $1,000, but that's still a lot of money. And then the Commodore 64 came out, and it cost $200, but it didn't have a disk drive. And I started hearing that they intended to introduce a floppy disk drive. And I said, yeah, that'll probably cost another couple hundred bucks. So this is, this is going to be a great platform for us because the price points are lower. A lot more people can afford to buy a Commodore 64. And, of course, that's exactly how it, play, it played out. And the uh, CPU was the uh, Motorola 6502. Uh, that processor was in all of these machines. So when we were making a game... We knew we could basically port that game very easily across Apple II, Atari 800, Commodore 64, and in some cases elsewhere. And then, you know, uh, the uh, IBM PC market started developing, and that gave, a, gave us another machine that we could uh, make the same, you know, make the same games for. You know, that was the uh, first generation of uh, EA machines and products. Well, one big hit that you had in those early days was that Dr. J and Larry Bird go one-on-one. That was a big game, and that was, obviously, it was a sports game. But was that a bit of a turning point using professional sports players' names and endorsement? Uh, The Dr. J game really was a milestone in the industry because no celebrity of any kind had ever had their name on a video game or had ever appeared in a video game. So it broke that new ground, and it was also really the birth point for EA Sports. And... Those machines were, uh, the machines it ran on initially were 8-bit and limited. And so I thought, well, I'm not going to try to do a, a really sophisticated team sport that has a whole lot of players running around in the field because we don't have the graphics power to, to display it properly. We don't even have the uh, machine processing ability to you know, have good instructions to what all those players ought to be doing and how it all fits together. And so I, I invented this uh, concept of, of a one-on-one uh, basketball game. And, and then I went and signed one athlete, you know, Julius Irving, Dr. J, and then uh, had them help me convince Larry Bird to do it. And so that's how that game uh, came into creation. And I kind of did everything with that game. I designed it. I, I was the executive producer. You know, I, I put all of the elements uh, together to make it happen and kind of hovered right over, you know, right over it uh, all the way through uh, production and the success of that game, you know, it, it kind of encouraged me and gave me the conviction and then to go on to more ambitious uh, sports products. And so the business that would later be known as EA sports, you know, began to uh, steadily grow after that and it diversified into a lot more uh, games. And, and then of course, uh, it grew dramatically once we had 16-bit hardware. Did the video game crash affect EA at all? Uh, yes, it did. So what happened when Atari imploded, uh, this was in uh, early 1983. You know, some of the uh, famous announcements that they made publicly were kind of at the end of 1982, and we were already working on games that we were going to be able to make our debut with in the spring of 1983. And by that time the media coverage had basically said, yeah, uh, video games are dead, so don't waste your time thinking about it anymore. So the uh, consumer had a perception like, oh, yeah, I'm, I don't, I'm not going to do that. It's dead. Uh, I don't care. There's nothing there. 
And, and then meanwhile, the uh, retailers, uh, in many cases, they withdrew from the category. And so when we're trying to come to market and we're trying to find retail stores that could carry our games, man, they were hard to find. And so it was a real struggle to just, you know, build uh, retail distribution bit by bit by bit. And it was a struggle for a couple of years. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a science fiction fan. I had read Dune. And if you know the storyline of that book, you know that the Fremen who live on that planet, there's no water. And so they have to wear a special suit where they're literally recycling their perspiration and their urine so they, they have water to drink and stay alive. And uh, in that period of the early to mid-1980s where we were struggling to survive, I just kept saying, that, yeah, we're like the Fremen. We're like the <laughs> Fremen of Dune. And we came close to the edge a few times. This is what a lot of people don't know or understand about successful businesses is that uh, they uh, often avert disaster multiple times. And by the time you're a success, everybody thinks, wow, that really happened quickly, didn't you? No, no, it really took about 10 years. I mean, to really become cemented as a success, you've got to dodge a, a fair number of bullets. You were focusing on computers a bit more as well, which I guess, you know, if you'd have put all your eggs in like the Atari basket for, you know, the 2600 or something, that probably would have been a, a bad idea at the time. Yeah, and I saw companies do that and I saw them go down. And in my original business plan, I had made it very clear that we didn't respect that platform because it was so limited, you couldn't really do anything with it. I mean, and I'm not making this up, the total memory footprint of the Atari 2600 was 128 bytes. I mean, I didn't say kilobytes. Yeah. I didn't say megabytes. Bytes. And you literally could have six sprites. So basically, you could have six tiny little graphic bitmaps on the screen at once. And if you needed more than that, you had to turn them on and off so they would be flickering. You could only have six active on any one frame. So even, you know, even when Atari made maybe their most successful game, which was uh, Pac-Man for the Atari 2600, the Pac-Man that you're moving around, uh, he could only really face one direction. You know, they, they didn't even have the ability to point the mouse up when he was going up and to point it down when he was going down. That's how, that's how limited it was. And I, I recognized from a technology and from an artistic standpoint in terms of the educational value, the simulation's potential, I recognized the big difference between using technology for amusement as opposed to using it for simulation. And I really didn't have that much interest in amusement. I've, I never have and I never will. Uh, sure, we, we do all like to be amused, but it's just a, uh, a simple thing you can do to kill some time. And it can be thrilling for a few minutes, but I, I always wanted software to be much more than that. So it wasn't hard for me to turn my back on early consoles like the Atari 2600 and say, look at these home computers. They've got 64,000 bytes of RAM memory. They've got floppy disks that can hold more than double that. You know, we can read and write from the disk. You know, we can print things out. You know, just, there's just so much more potential there. You know, the ability to use a modem, you know, and have uh, an early Internet game. I mean, there was just so much more there, and I knew it would just get better over time. I knew Moore's Law would keep, you know, expanding the capacity by orders of magnitude, and the prices would come down, and you'd have more and better machines in the home. 
Well, you also did some non-game software, and this piece of software, I still use it today. I think it's absolutely amazing. It was Deluxe Paint, and it kind of became the industry standard paint package, but also it was used for animation, it was used for games design. What was the story behind this product? Well, we had a willingness, right from the beginning, a willingness to treat this as a new medium and explore all kinds of different kinds of applications, not just games, and particularly things that allowed customers to engage their creativity and to have simpler and more accessible ways of doing things. You know, like one of our early products was called Financial Cookbook, and it was a set of 33 simple financial formulas that you could use to you know, make some basic decisions like getting a mortgage and deciding uh, what to do with your uh, retirement account and you know, a variety of other simple things. You know, uh, I worked pretty hard on that product because I had you know, some uh, financial uh, training because I had an MBA. And ultimately, that product wasn't a big success, and that was kind of disappointing to me. Uh, we also did an early word processor that was very, very easy to use, uh, but uh, that you know couldn't compete with the uh, beefier enterprise word processors that were uh, being marketed at that time. And uh, the uh, Deluxe series was a case where uh, we uh, initially uh, had made a game called Music Construction Set uh, with Will Harvey, and that's actually the first piece of music software that ever sold a million units. And it did that, that in spite of the limitations of the machines, it was on, like the Apple II, which really didn't make very good sound. And that was kind of empowering. And then we moved on to make other construction set products. Uh, another notable early one was pinball construction set. So we definitely had this idea of creativity tools and things that allowed you to, uh, you know, in some cases make your own games and to, uh, you know, create things. And Deluxe Paint, ironically, was an internal tool that we created and built from scratch to provide it as part of the suite of studio tools that our developers use to make the games. And then Tim Mott, who was in charge of uh, R&D and developer support and so on, uh, he had the brilliant business idea to say, hey, uh, why don't we turn this into a product and sell it uh, to the public? And that was around the same time that the Commodore Amiga was coming out. And it was a 16-bit machine with all kinds of extra capabilities because of graphics and sound chips. And we were, uh, I was particularly excited about it, and I got the company excited about it. And uh, what was interesting is that the Amiga as a platform it allowed us to publish Deluxe Paint uh, and then to do other higher-powered uh, creativity tools, including Deluxe Music Construction Set, a product called Deluxe Video, and, and some others. And they were actually a really good business for us throughout the 1980s. By the time you get to 1990, that's when uh, I kind of went, I took the company all in on the uh, Sega Mega Drive. And that, that machine to me was kind of like a, uh, a Commodore Amiga crammed into a smaller package at a lower price. Uh, what the Sega Genesis allowed us to do was really crush the uh, EA Sports business, but because it was a machine where you couldn't save anything and you couldn't print anything out, uh, it was kind of the uh, beginning of the end for the creativity tools. Well, I, I remember the iconic image with Deluxe Paint being the Tutankhamun, and I was just wondering like, yeah. uh, how you came up with that idea or how, how it was actually put in there, because that was a real genius move, because everybody identified with that worldwide, and seeing it in that quality was like, wow. 
Yeah, I mean, to this day, uh, I see that image and, you know, it makes my heart beat a little faster. It was a gorgeous image from the first time any of us saw it. I can't really say that management directed or conceived of that. You know, we had we had the tool. We had artists using the tool. I don't even remember which artist created that image, but we all looked at it and said, wow, that that is stunning. And, yeah, that's that's going to be uh, the image we build the brand around. Well, let's talk about the uh, Genesis then, because, I mean, obviously, you know, Skate or Die came out on that system in 1988. I mean, when you first saw the Genesis, um, what made you want to develop for that system? And did you see it as, like, a real revolution after, like, you know, the NES had obviously been around for a couple of years, but it felt like the, the Genesis was just, a, like, a new dawn? Well, you know, the company had some constraints, and I was beginning to feel like we were being painted into a corner. And what I mean by that is that the hardware manufacturers weren't really making a machine that had the kind of multimedia features that we needed to make great games. And they weren't making them cheap enough for a lot of people to buy them. And Nintendo had come in to the market in the, in the late 80s and said, hey, here's a, here's a $100 product. And yeah, it, it, it's, it does, it's a lot better than the Atari 2600, but it still has a lot of the uh, limitations that I didn't really like about uh, consoles, and they introduce a very draconian business model where they were saying, hey, our machine's a black box, and you don't get to know how it works unless you sign this really limited license agreement, or we're going to control your business, and we're going to call the shots, and we're going to make most of the money, and you have to be okay with that. And honestly, none of the Western companies were okay with that. You know, the Western companies making game software in the late 80s, we were accustomed to controlling our own destinies, publishing on these open platforms like the PC, and being able to put our games on floppy disks, which were very inexpensive to manufacture. So we were able to bring products to market uh, uh, with lower risk. And Nintendo came along and said, no, no, it's got to be a cartridge, and you're going to have to pay us like $20 per cartridge. Well, just right there, you know, if you're going to buy half a million cartridges, you were basically, you know, taking a, uh, a huge financial risk up front because they're going to make you pay for the cartridge, which has chips and a circuit board and gold-plated connectors and has to be assembled. And then they're going to tack a huge licensing fee on top of it. This was kind of the birth of uh, what later got adopted by a whole lot of other companies, including Apple and Google for smartphones, where basically a third of the revenue is going to the uh, creator of the platform technology that's basically saying, hey, a third of the retail value goes to us just because we created this technology. Yeah. And it's way out of line with anything that's economically reasonable or sustainable, and that's why today, even today, most mobile games fail. I mean, a very high percentage. I mean, only about one out of every, every thousand mobile games ends up being profitable. It's not a great business. You took a stand against Sega and actually managed to negotiate a lower-than-average price then for the, the licensing. Well, it was uh, the most courageous thing I ever did in my career. And I've done plenty of stupid things that didn't work out. Well, this is one case where I did something smart that did work out. And I was looking at Nintendo and what I didn't like about it. And I noticed that Sega had decided they were going to copy everything Nintendo was doing. And I thought, you know, uh, I, want, I want to investigate reverse engineering the Sega Genesis so that we can basically bring products to market without a license. 
And this is this is the one and only time in the history of the game industry that any company has successfully pulled it off. There have been other attempts. Uh, one of them was Tengen, also known as Atari Games, that uh, reverse engineered the uh, Nintendo, you know, 8-bit system, and they lost their court case because they did not. Uh, they number one didn't really do a clean room engineering job, so there was copyright infringement because of that. But then they also had to infringe the uh, security chip patents that Nintendo had. So we investigated that, and we concluded with Nintendo that, you know, we can't get around the patents on the security chip. Uh, the Sega Genesis or Mega Drive, they didn't have a security chip. And, of course, we had to gamble and say, all right, well, we're going to go reverse engineer this thing, and we're going to do it correctly. And then we're going to presume that when they ship it in the West. So in those days, a Japanese console would come out in Japan in the case of the Genesis uh, or Mega Drive, it launched in Japan for uh, the holiday season in 1988. And then it came to the U.S. in the fall of 89. It came to Europe in the fall of 1990. And, you know, we bought one of the first ones that showed up in a retail store in Japan in the fall of 88. We, we brought a few of them back uh, to the United States, and we started uh, taking it apart and figuring out how it worked. And it took us about a year to figure out how it worked. And then we were able to supply our developers with instructions on how to make uh, Sega Genesis games and tools to help them do that. And then we were able to get several projects into production, and we were able to prepare to launch them in June of 1990 at the CES show. And towards the end of that process, I realized that, hey, Tripp, you know, you're CEO of a public company, and you're about to... Uh, basically go to war with Sega and you, you may, maybe it would be a good thing to just go talk to Sega and see if you can make peace with them. And so I started that process about two months before the CES show. And they were initially trying to just huff and puff like the big bad wolf and blow our house down and making all these threats, including things like, well, we're just going to change the U.S. machine so that your software doesn't work and we're going to sue you and we're going to do this, and we're going to do that. Well, uh, calmer heads prevailed, and we started a conversation process, and I was eventually able to convince them to give us a very, very generous uh, license agreement because I had enough leverage to not need it, and uh, we, we pulled that off. And again, that had a lot to do with our ability to deliver half of the good games that were made available for the Sega in the next couple of years to essentially end up with uh, half the market, which was kind of unprecedented for a third-party company. Well, the John Madden football series came out in 1988 as well, and you kind of chose him, and how, how did you work closely together with him, and how did you get his influences and designs onto the game as well? So I had always been a football fan, and my oldest friends would say that I started Electronic Arts so I could make a football game. So personally, that was the game that I most wanted to play myself, and therefore it was the game that I most wanted to develop and publish. And I was encouraged by the success of the uh, Dr. Jerry and Larry Bird go one-on-one -on -one game and started work on a, a team football game after that and uh, ended up deciding to work with John Madden because I thought, you know, uh, you know, it'll help us to have a good brand name on the game. 
and for that person to be uh, someone who can actually help fill in uh, some of the uh, design and simulation characteristics because for example if you're if you're playing against the computer the computer needs to do good play calling against you and that's an example of something where i said yeah madden can help us with that you know i also wanted help in creating a uh, really good playbook of plays for the game so there was a, there were a whole variety of things where i felt like uh, john madden was the right kind of brand image for us. Uh, he, w- he had already won a Super Bowl. He was already a very successful coach, but he had then gone on to become a TV personality. So he was an Emmy Award-winning broadcaster by that time. He had put out a few paperback books that had been uh, uh, successful. Uh, he uh, was uh, promoting beer and hardware stores. And, you know, he was, he was just a very prominent uh, commercial uh, figure. And he had he had done a great job of kind of creating a persona with a sense of humor and the way he uh, worked as a uh, broadcaster. So he was a, a really good fit. And, you know, the way that all got started is uh, I negotiated a deal with his agent and he was still uh, riding around the country on a train at that time. because He didn't like flying. And uh, I, I, uh, I took a couple of my guys and we flew into Denver, got on a train, and then basically I spent the next two and a half days on the train coming west asking him uh, questions so that I could finish the design of the game. And, and then, of course, uh, he lived in uh, the East Bay you know, of the San Francisco Bay Area, so we would periodically go out to his house to have further sessions and to review progress and so on. So, you know, we, we had a very, very active uh, relationship, and, and I had played football and understood a lot about football, but he, he really filled in some important gaps in my knowledge, and it helped me do a lot more of the detailed simulation design. Well, as always, Trip, I mean, you were looking ahead at this stage to the next big thing, um, and obviously 32-bit was kind of on the horizon. Where did the idea of 3DO come from, and what were your initial goals that you wanted to achieve with 3DO? So around 1990, when I knew I had a deal with Sega that was going to be very lucrative, and over the next couple of years, it really did transform the value of the company. And I knew that we could just keep cranking out value and growth for probably at least a five-year period. That's when I began to kind of look further out and think, okay, well, what's going to happen after this? And I was a little worried that, that uh, the hardware companies were going to be on high alert because I had reverse engineered the Sega. And I knew uh, Nintendo wasn't probably very happy about it and felt a little threatened. And I knew Sega might try to figure out how to make it hard for me to do it again. And I began to think, you know, uh, uh, what can I do to get other hardware companies make the right kind of hardware so I'm not dependent on companies like Nintendo and Sega? And I went around the world and I talked to everybody. And what I realized was, wow, nobody really is willing to do what needs to be done. You know, the Commodore Amiga ended up being an interesting milestone because uh, the guys that designed it and developed it understood that a home computer really could be and ought to be a multimedia machine with great sound and graphics capabilities. But after that machine failed, because Commodore didn't really, Commodore didn't really know what to do with it, it just kind of sank away. And, you know, even the Atari ST that tried to copy it, you know, they didn't do a great job copying it. And even that machine kind of sank away. And all of the rest of the manufacturers, they were just overly focused on the PC market. And the PC market had become an office desktop 
dominated market, which is partly my fault because I helped pioneer that market at Apple. And they didn't care. They couldn't imagine how they would use graphics and sound. They just wanted to do things like spreadsheets and word processors. And that's what they, that's what they were all uh, focused on. Nobody was really seeing the uh, future potential for entertainment and education and things that could leverage video and so on like we do today. I also noticed that quite a few hardware companies kind of wanted me to tell them what they needed to do. And in particular, I'm thinking of uh, Asian consumer electronics companies that were thinking about whether or not they should enter the PC market and thinking about whether or not they should do something more on the consumer electronics side. And that's when I realized, well, shoot, uh, why don't I help create a new standard, a new standard technology and you know, engage with some of these companies to have them manufacture it. And that's, that's really uh, when the 3DO idea was born. And then I found out pretty quickly that some of the guys that I knew that had created the Amiga had actually started working on a new architecture, a 32-bit multimedia architecture. And I thought, oh, okay, well, maybe I can collaborate with these guys. And we worked out an agreement, and that became the uh, first-generation 3DO hardware. So what was the kind of process of designing the spec and making the hardware decisions, you know, deciding how powerful it was going to be? Well, unfortunately, as one of my former uh, Apple colleagues said uh, one day, engineering schedules and other lies. Generally, creative people are, are going to be optimists and engineers are going to underestimate how long it's going to take to make something work. And they're also going to probably underestimate how much memory it needs to really work appropriately. They don't know how big the operating system is going to end up being and don't really understand what the needs of certain kinds of programs are going to be. So we had a spec. Uh, we uh, you know, didn't make all the scheduled dates for getting it finished. And along the way, the desire about how much memory it was going to have crept up from you know, one megabyte to two megabytes to three megabytes. It just kept growing. And at that time, uh, just computer memory alone was very, very expensive because of the way the PC market was gobbling up all of the uh, supply of RAM. And of course, uh, we wanted to use a uh, optical disk drive, you know, CD-ROM. They were still pretty expensive because they weren't yet in really high production volume. So that was a, uh, a problem. Is that by the time we came to market, the uh, costs were pretty high it caused the retail price to be higher than we would like. I mean, the street price was initially around 600 US dollars and within a year it had come down to uh, under $500, but it was still too high. And, you know, there, there wasn't a, a huge market that was yet really educated or prepared to spend that much money on uh, a game system that, you know, even though it had other entertainment capabilities, it was really kind of judged as a game system. And then, of course, uh, about two years later, the uh, PlayStation showed up, and Sony invested $2 billion to launch it. They were willing to eat losses, so they shocked everybody by introducing it in in America at a $299 price point. And they uh, caught some tailwind because a lot of new fabrication facilities came online, and in one day, the cost of a RAM, of a uh, megabyte of RAM memory dropped from... I think like $30 down to $7. So there was a huge amount of savings for them on their memory costs. And CD-ROM manufacturing costs were also coming down. And so they were able to place a bet that they could get it out and sell more units at these lower prices. And to give Sony credit, they built a great machine and their 
marketing execution was outstanding. They had very strong brand power that even took Nintendo by surprise. And they did a great job on developer support. And in, in fact, at one point, Phil Harrison admitted to me that they had copied a lot of 3DO's developer support practices. So they won the market. What did you think of the other early competitor, the, the Atari Jaguar? Because I know they were going on about, you know, it was a 64-bit system. I know at the time you, you're quite outspoken about that. You know, uh, they were never really a serious competitor. They didn't have enough money. Uh, none of the things that they built were really finished enough or good enough. And so they were a good PR machine. They were good at, at uh, making exotic claims to the media and getting media coverage for them. By the way, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people would accuse 3DO of the same. So, yeah, there was a bit of a war of words that went on between Atari and uh, 3DO trying to, you know, uh, hit each other below the belt a little bit. But uh, n- neither platform really had enough juice. Neither company had enough money to really compete effectively with the PlayStation. Well, you were working on a, um, a sequel as well, the, the M2, which I remember seeing demos of that, and that did look incredible. What kind of happened with that? And I know obviously the project was cancelled in the end, but what was the aims with it, and what happened? Well, we had a great hardware engineering organization that included uh, a guy named John Sink who had designed the PowerPC uh, CPU that was used in uh, not just IBM PCs in that generation, but also in Apple uh, Macintoshes in that uh, time period. And we had you know, great designers of uh, graphics and sound capabilities. And when the PlayStation showed up, we thought, well, they've got us beat in the 32-bit category. Maybe what we need to do is just leapfrog it and get to 64-bit well ahead of them. And it just turned out to be a bridge too far. We uh, were able to build the machine, get it working. But uh, Sony was gobbling up market share and brand value. And I think it intimidated the manufacturing partners that we had. And they just didn't really want to uh, chase Sony, even though some of these are companies like Matsushita that had beaten Sony in the VHS versus Betamax and in in other market uh, situations. They just... They just didn't really feel like they understood how to compete with uh, Sony PlayStation. And that's partly because Sony by that time had become a much more sophisticated software company. Hmm. And they'd been in the music business uh, for quite a while. And they had a better sense of how to nurture and support a software community and you know, how to really bring a machine like the PlayStation to life and make great first-party games. And that was just something that was completely beyond the reach of uh, the hardware partners that we had. And they just they just said, you know, uh, yeah, Sony's won, and we're not going to chase them anymore. I mean, obviously hindsight's a wonderful thing, but, I mean, if you could go back and do it again, is there anything you'd do differently? I think, you know, it turned out for Electronic Arts that when the PlayStation came along, Electronic Arts already had a lot of great games running on 3DO, that they knew could be ported to Sony very easily. So it was very easy for EA to become an overnight leader on the PlayStation. And of course, they wanted that. Sony wanted that. But they also had leverage where they could say to Sony, hey, look, you know, we helped create 3DO, and we're supporting them. And if you want us to uh, betray our founder, you're going to have to give us a special deal. 
And I think EA was able to uh, use that kind of leverage for a few years with a few of the uh, other competitors. And I think they basically ended up with far more favorable licensing terms. And again, that helped power a new growth stage for EA as the uh, you know CD-ROM uh, marketplace really started to take hold. And that gave them a you know, significant competitive advantage, not unlike the advantage we'd had on the Sega Genesis. Well, you- and that was, just ir- that was just irresistible to EA management. So even though at that time I was chairman of the board and I was the largest EA shareholder, I couldn't stop that from happening. And it really did uh, kind of throw 3DO under the bus. Well, you've probably seen a lot of these uh, mini consoles coming out at the moment, and uh, I'm not sure, but do you still have the rights to the 3DO? And do you think we'd ever see a mini 3DO coming out in the future? You know, 3DO went through um, a couple of uh, auction processes to sell off all of its uh, technology rights, so I don't have any rights to anything related to 3DO, and I've kind of lost track of who owns the right to watch. Obviously, we live today in an era of, really sophisticated emulators and there's a big collector's market around 3DO. So who knows what's going to happen that might be related to 3DO and whether or not uh, anybody will, uh, you know, really try to do anything or try to stop anybody from doing anything. It's, I think it's kind of charming that there are uh, so many 3DO fans that are still around and are still vocal. Yeah, I include myself as one of them. Yeah, but I've, I've got a couple of 3DOs at home. Oh, thank you. Do you still own any of the yeah. systems yourself? Have you got any 3DOs or anything in the basement or attic or anything? Absolutely. All right, cool. And, and uh, I've uh, kind of used them regularly over the years, and I probably have a better collection of 3DO software than anyone, and it's all you know piled up in boxes in the basement. And you know, one of these days I'm going to get around to organizing it and probably uh, – you know, giving some of it to museums. Well, Tripp, it's been a pleasure talking to you. I mean, what, what are you working on these days? What, what are you up to now? Well, the uh, main thing I do is I help other entrepreneurs figure out how to make their businesses work. And some of that I do kind of as a, a form of charity where, you know, without getting paid, particularly if, if I uh, know about a social entrepreneur that's trying to do something that's going to really help the world, Maybe it's got to do with a topic like sustainability or, you know, energy efficiency, uh, or it could be uh, someone that's involved in uh, nonprofit work, you know, like helping uh, work on social issues like homelessness. You know, so I, I, uh, I spend a chunk of time coming in that direction. That's really just uh, me kind of giving back to the community. And then my, uh, my primary business activity is uh, working with technology CEOs of, you know, small uh, technology companies that, you know, have potential. And uh, I've been doing this now for uh, about 10 years. And I'm really pleased with the fact that a couple of my clients are pretty much on their way to being uh, successful unicorns. And it's been very gratifying for me to uh, share what I know and what I learned from all the mistakes that I made and all the ways that I was able to mature and grow into a better executive with a lot of these uh, younger CEOs and I like to help them figure out how to not make all the mistakes that I did. Well, Trip, I could, I could talk to you for another two or three hours easily about all this stuff. It's so interesting, but we know you're a busy guy. Um, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing your stories with us, so thank you so much. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Good luck, guys.